0: This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Well, hello,
1: everybody, and welcome to this week's conversation. Why did Jesus have to die? Why, why was the death of Jesus necessary? How is it that his death actually forgives our sins? This is what we're gonna be talking about as we try to dig deeper into a really fundamental and important Christian doctrine, the death of Jesus. And so if that's something that you have wondered about or figure out why does this matter, how does this work, rather than the surface level, understanding of, hey, Jesus died for my sins. I'm saved. That's maybe all I need to know. This conversation is for you. And if you're new watching, this is a weekly show. My name is Ryan Pauley. We cover a topic every week where we think deeply about what Christians believe, why they believe it, and then hopefully allowing you to live out faithfully according to the Christian worldview. So this is one of those topics that we need to know and understanding Jesus. And if you're interested, next week is going to be talking about the reliability of the Bible. That should be a fun conversation as well. So joining me, as you see there on the screen, coming back for his second time is Dr. William Lane Craig. He is a professor at Talbot School of Theology and Houston Baptist University. He has written a wide range of books. He's the president of Reasonable Faith, but the book that we're talking about today is his book, Atonement and the Death of Christ. So, Dr. Craig, thank you so much for joining me again for this conversation.
0: It's great to be with you, Ryan. I had such a good time uh, during our last interview. I was very eager to do another with you. Oh, I appreciate it and, and uh, I
1: had a great time as well and I know that a lot of people had a fun time watching that and learned a lot and so it's just good to be back and having this conversation with you and as we were just discussing before, what we were both aware of or unaware of at the time is that you part of working with crew or actually over at my parents house for crew meetings years ago before I knew who you were and we could have had great conversations then and I, I missed out on those opportunities. Huh. <laughs> So awesome. Well, I would like to just jump right in and encourage those who are watching. We're going to take some questions. I have a lot here, but we're going to try to get to your questions as well, if you have them. And I hope that my internet's going to hold up again. I keep saying this every week, but the internet company assures me that there are no problems. So we're going to hope that it keeps working. They keep fixing different (laughs) things. But first of all, uh, the atonement, Uh, where would you rank this as being, how important is this doctrine considering all the doctrines of Christianity?
0: Yeah. Well, I would want to distinguish, Ryan, between the doctrine of the atonement and a theory of the atonement. The doctrine of the atonement is the very simple teaching of the New Testament that Christ died for our sins, that by his death we are reconciled to God. That is absolutely central to the gospel. On the other hand, theologians have developed quite a wide range of different theories of the atonement to explain how it is that the death of Christ reconciled us to God. And that, I think, is of secondary importance. As Christians, we can differ in our theories of the atonement so long as we hold to that essential doctrine that Christ died for our sins, thereby reconciling us to God.
1: So what would you say then in response to someone goes, okay, well, then why do I need to watch this interview? I have the the core doctrine no. down. Christ died for our sins, reconciles me to God. I don't need to spend the time thinking about these theories. How, how would understanding the theories and the deeper aspects of the atonement, why is that beneficial? Why should they stay and watch
0: this? Well, one reason would be apologetic. Uh, today, the atonement is widely attacked, even vilified, Uh, not only by secularists, it's also rejected by Muslims, um, and even many Christians um, caricature the atonement as cosmic child abuse and um, reject the notion that Christ's death on the cross is the means of our reconciliation to God. So I think apologetically it's very important to be able to give a reasoned defense of the Biblical doctrine of the atonement. But then, secondly, as well, I think for one's own personal theological enrichment, Mm -hmm. uh, I find that my worship of God is deeper, uh, my awe of his person is greater, uh, as I have deeper doctrinal understanding of Christian truths. And certainly there is a lot, lot more to the doctrine of the atonement than that simple statement that I quoted, Christ died for our sins. This doctrine has rich Old Testament backgrounds and overtones, and it's permeated with concepts of divine justice and satisfaction and redemption. Um, in the New Testament. And so it's a very multifaceted and rich doctrine that I think merits exploration for its own sake.
1: And I couldn't agree with you more there in this understanding that the more that we know about something, I think it drives that appreciation, that gratitude, and that joy. I mean, it's it's not just with the doctrines. Uh, I truly know and understand hockey and so i enjoy watching it other people uh, see it they, they can't even track the puck and it, and it doesn't make sense or i go to an art yeah. museum and i go yeah they're nice paintings but someone who truly understands art and art history they go and they and there's that so much more joy and a greater experience of it and so i think and i always say this i think sometimes we're bored with christianity or we're bored with god because we don't have that deep knowledge of him that drives i think that true yes kind of reverence and honor and awe where we go, wow, this is amazing. And so,
0: yes, those are wonderful analogies that you just gave. And I, I fully agree with that. Awesome. So one thing that we're
1: going to be doing throughout this conversation is kind of two different or three different things. We're going to be looking at kind of some basics that Christians should understand on why this matters and what it is. I'm going to be looking at objections that have already kind of come up of cosmic child abuse to it's unjust of punishing an innocent person. How do we respond to that apologetically? As well as I found some analogies of people using to try to describe the Trinity. And we're going to look at trying to understand, are these analogies accurate? We we hear a lot about Trinitarian analogies and how they're not accurate. But what about atonement analogies. And so that's kind of where this conversation uh, is going today. So kind of jumping up and some, jumping uh, into some questions uh, that came in from listeners. Um, first of all, it's kind of understanding the atonement from the Old Testament and how it relates to what we have today. Um, first of all, I think the most basic sense is this idea of Jesus dying and the spilling of blood. Um, why was Christ's death on the cross necessary? Why, why did it have to be a blood sacrifice in order for us to confess, Mm -hmm. repent, and ask forgiveness for your sins. Why death? Yeah.
0: One of the most interesting things that I discovered through my work on the atonement is that theologians actually disagree among themselves concerning the necessity of Christ's passion and death. Uh, Most lay people, I think, believe that Christ had to die for our sins, or we couldn't be forgiven. But in fact, that is not the view of many church fathers such as Augustine, nor of Thomas Aquinas, nor of Hugo Grotius, the great Protestant. For all these people, um, they think that God's choice of the passion and death of Christ as the means of our redemption was a contingent choice Hmm. on God's part. And so I differentiate between what I call necessitarian views of the atonement, which said that there had to be uh, an atoning death in order for God to forgive sins, and contingentist views of the atonement, which says that Christ didn't have to die for our sins in order for God to forgive us, but that this was a contingent choice on God's part. Now, if you were to ask Aquinas and Grotius, well then why did God make such a choice to allow his son to undergo such horrible suffering as the means of our redemption? They would say that there were great benefits to be obtained by the passion and death of Christ that would not have been obtained otherwise if God had just simply forgiven sin. Uh, for example, Uh, Both Aquinas and Grotius think that the death of Christ shows in a graphic way the seriousness of our Mm. sin and God's hatred of sin. Nothing could make it so plain to us uh, how horrid uh, sin is and Mm. how much God abhors sin than the way in which uh, Christ died as our substitute, uh, bearing the wrath of God and satisfying divine punishment. On the other hand, Grotius and Aquinas would say nothing shows so powerfully the love of God as the voluntary, supreme, self-giving sacrifice of Christ, the second member of the Trinity, um, in order to win us back to uh, God, and certainly, I think in the history of um, civilization, the passion and the death of Christ have attracted more people by far to Christian faith than the teachings of Jesus or any other uh, single factor. The the passion and death of Christ has been tremendously attractive in drawing people to Christian faith. So for these theologians, um, it wasn't necessary, in fact, for Christ to die for our sins. This was a contingent choice on God's part, um, and he had good reasons for it. Now, on the other hand, the Protestant reformers, such as Luther and Calvin, did hold to a necessity Uh, pardon me, a necessitarian view Mm -hmm. of the atonement, they agreed in that respect with St. Anselm that the demands of God's justice had to be satisfied because if God simply blinked at sin without the satisfaction of divine justice, then God would not be perfectly holy. Uh, Sin had to be punished if God is to be perfectly just. And so God had to find the means Of meeting or satisfying both the demands of his justice and the demands of his love. And the claim is that these meet at the cross, the love and the justice of God, kiss at the cross as we see God's justice satisfied by Christ's substitutionary death, but then we also see the love of God manifested as God gives uh, himself to satisfy the demands of justice that his own uh, holiness had exacted. Yeah.
1: Now, you mentioned there that this is, as seen by some, to show the seriousness of sin. This is a necessary, mm-hmm. or even it's contingent, but beautiful because it shows how serious sin is. Do you think that as we see people attacking this idea of the death of Jesus being either necessary or beautiful in a sense, uh, is it, because is there an aspect that like we don't see sin as serious as we should? Is that one reason why we don't get it?
0: Oh, I'm sure that is quite right, uh, Ryan. I think this is a legacy of the old liberal theology of the 19th century, which really depreciated the notion of human sinfulness. Um, and I do think that the cross of Christ powerfully reminds us of how abhorrent our sins are to God. Um, This is the punishment that should have been meted out on me. This is my punishment that that I should have borne. And it just makes it impossible to take a light and breezy attitude towards sin when you see what it costs Jesus to redeem us. Yeah.
1: Now, you also mentioned it's at the cross where the, the love of God and the justice of God come together. And I think, again, that's something that we often miss in our culture is we focus on one or the other. And it's generally not focusing on God's justice. It's, off, it's often the focus of love. I mean, is there a connection that we can make of if we want to only focus on that one rather than both? Is it's similar to like a judge looking at murderers and just say i forgive you go free rather than giving them the just punishment that they
0: deserve is there an aspect it's it's like there was a wonderful illustration a year or so ago of that um judge in dallas texas you remember who after pronouncing verdict on the woman before the bar she was found guilty the judge came out from behind the bench and embraced her, Mm. and I believe gave her a Bible and expressed personal love toward the accused or the convicted person. It was such a stunning illustration that was all over the news of how, as a judge, the demands of justice had to be satisfied and could not be compromised, but then As a human being on a personal level, this judge in her private role could forgive and um, be reconciled with the defendant that was before her bar. Yeah.
1: So how that kind of makes me think of it, it reminds me of a recent conversation where the kind of the, the reasoning was presented of then where is the grace? If God is going to send me to hell oh. for my sins, a loving father would show grace, a loving father would help me realize the truth so that I don't go there. How can Christians reconcile this loving God and a, a God of grace? Where is the grace then?
0: Oh, well, that's easy (laughs) to answer. It's the incarnation. God didn't just sit back and fold his arms and say, literally, to hell with you. Mm -hmm. Instead, he took on a human nature and entered our weakness and finitude and uh, limitations, and what did he do? He suffered. Jesus bore a suffering that is incomprehensible to us because he bore the sin of the entire world in his death on the cross none of us can form any idea of what that was like so the grace of god is just shouted uh, in the incarnation and passion of christ
1: yeah I, I, I can't agree more. And I, I think that that's why it's so important to remember these and go back and remind ourselves is that sometimes I think with these doctrines, we can get so focused in on one aspect and forget another aspect that really yeah. completes this beautiful picture. Now, you said something there, I think, that it, that leads me to an, another question I got from a listener, is how exactly was Jesus' death a propitiation for our sins? If we deserve an eternal punishment, Jesus was only punished three days. How does that actually pay back the
0: sins of the world? I think that uh, Reformed theologians have correctly emphasized that uh, because of the divinity of his person, because he was God, Uh, And because he bore the punishment for the sin of the whole world, of separation relationally from God the Father, that Christ suffered the equivalent uh, of hell for every human being um, in his death on the cross. Um, He experienced the separation from God, the loss of full divine felicity and joy and relationship with the father um and that more than makes up in intensity for whatever anyone would suffer in hell for his sins though so it'd go on forever
1: so how would you respond to so i hear the objection often it comes from atheism of it's just a bad weekend uh, Jesus. Yeah, that's
0: so silly. <laughs> Jesus that, you know, knew I, he I, would be raised. Yeah, I, I I become so impatient with these, frankly flippant,
1: yeah.
0: atheists. If you know, even on the level of crucifixion. Ooh, Ryan, just think. Suppose you knew that tomorrow you were going to be hauled off and crucified, right. um, but you'd be raised again on on Sunday morning. Would you have a flippant attitude toward that? Absolutely not. I I remember seeing a movie once of a man who was in the Tower of London awaiting his execution. And they told him, tomorrow morning, you're gonna be dragged out, you're gonna be castrated, and then you're gonna be drawn and quartered and disemboweled. And it was just horrible. I mean, just the anticipation of that was, Horrible, regardless of what might be restored afterwards. And then that's just the physical suffering. That, as I say, is trivialized by what Christ suffered in experiencing separation from God. His Father, from whom he had never known relational separation. Uh, And now he would become sin for us, uh, and be separated from God as Father. None of us can comprehend uh, that immeasurable suffering that he went, underwent on our behalf.
1: Yeah, and I think that's good. I mean, it's the same thing as if you go through some traumatic experience, even though the experience ends, there's still so much, I think, that comes from that. There, there's there's after effect, There's there's a separation. It's more than just simply the experience and now the experience is over, so everything should be happy and find it, it minimizes that experience. Um, okay, so kind of switching topics a little bit, um, then yeah, then that. Um, you mentioned at the beginning that there is kind of the, the, the doctrine of the atonement. Then there are these different theories that people kind of, that raise. And some of the kind of more popular theories have been kind of maybe a, a ransom theory. And correct me if I'm wrong, where that kind of focuses in on the death of Jesus and its effect on humanity. And then you kind of have this Christus Victor, which is more of a dominant historical view, maybe if you can say that, that kind of really focuses on Jesus defeating the evil uh, and freeing mankind. And then What's very popular today and kind of coming out of the Reformation is a penal substitutionary theory of Jesus dying and satisfying God's wrath against human sin. And I'm curious what you would say is, are these what you kind of say is kind of our our secondary, these different theories of how it works out? Um, And should we hold to a certain view or can you kind of combine these different views together to get a more comprehensive view?
0: I think absolutely that all of these different theories reflect facets of the biblical doctrine of the atonement. When you look at what the Bible teaches about atonement, you find that it is filled with different motifs and metaphors, so that the doctrine of the atonement is like a beautiful multifaceted jewel that includes all of those motifs that you uh, just mentioned. And so a full Theory of the atonement will not just focus on one motif, such as Christus Victor or penal substitution or moral influence. It will include all of these in this multifaceted gem.
1: Okay. So would you so for someone who says no penal substitutionary theory is true, it's not are they arguing against a Christus Victor or ransom theory or or do most Not people at all. say, no, I hold all views, or we're just focusing on a certain aspect when we talk about penal substitution?
0: Well, I think that is the correct attitude, because as okay. I say, all of these motifs are found in the Bible, and the Church Fathers affirmed all of these. Uh, it is um, a misrepresentation of the Church Fathers to say that they held uniformly, to Christus Victor or ransom models of the atonement. As I show in the book, that's patently false, and I quote um, from people like Eusebius and Augustine and uh, Gregory and others uh, to show that all of these various facets of the doctrine of the atonement are to be found in the church body. So a multifaceted doctrine of the atonement is clearly, I think, Uh, the most biblically adequate and what we want to have.
1: That's very helpful uh, for clarifying that. Now, kind of going along from that, another question came in for you and said uh, that it seems to be, or or I was asking your view of, do you see it as a detriment when we focus more on what is maybe more popular today, like penal substitutionary theory, which might, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, but it seems to be like we've shifted in in modern Christianity to more of a personal Mm -hmm. focus that Jesus died for my sins and kind of the penal substitution aspect rather than looking at kind of the universal aspect of the defeat of Satan, of the redemption of all things. um, Would you say that that maybe is an aspect of we've kind of become more personal, Jesus died for my sins, rather than having this more balanced approach of the defeat of Satan, the restoration of all things, would that be better?
0: Well, I think that anytime you focus exclusively on one motif or Mm -hmm. metaphor, You do so to the detriment of the full doctrine of the atonement. And so those who focus only on Christus victor or ransom really neglect the motifs of the satisfaction of divine justice and the reconciliation of sinners to God. Christus victor has nothing in it about how sinners are reconciled to God through Mm -hmm the death of Christ. On the other hand, if you focus only on penal substitution, as you say, um, then you will neglect perhaps the moral influence of Christ's death, of which I spoke earlier, or you might neglect um, uh, Christ's victory over hell and Satan and death. Uh, All of these are different facets of the atonement, and so In the book, I try to have a chapter on each one of these motifs to build a full-orbed theory of the atonement that includes them all. That's so good.
1: now, I, I think if you, when you look at the objections that come up against atonement, they're normally not objecting to these other views. Like generally speaking, people don't have a, a hard time with Jesus going after Satan. We see we see Satan as being a bad guy and he deserves punishment. But this idea of penal substitutionary theory is generally one that you see a lot of issues with. And I think the first one, as we talked about, is this idea of satisfying God's wrath. Why do you think it's it's yeah. people have a hard time with seeing God as a wrathful God? We just wanted this nice loving guy mm-hmm. in the sky. Why is it God actually having right. wrath that has to be satisfied is a hard time for us to understand? And why is that not a problem well, I, in your
0: view? I think that divine wrath is a personalistic expression of divine justice. Uh, it is by the satisfaction of divine justice that the wrath of God is propitiated or allayed. So we should think of God's wrath, I think, as an expression of his holiness and justice, which I think needs to be satisfied.
1: Uh, That's good. So um, looking at some of these objections then on the satisfaction of justice, um, one of the main objections that you often hear is this idea of that it is either impossible, unjust, or unfair Mm -hmm. To transfer the guilt of an any of a guilty person onto an innocent person, and so, how is it fair for God to put my guilt on an innocent person, Jesus?
0: The objection to the justice of penal substitution is almost never articulated or developed in any detail by its critics. Typically, they say, no "Nor what you did, just a single uh, paragraph or even a single sentence, and dismisses the." notion of uh, substitutionary atonement. In fact, however, I think that the argument against the justice of penal substitution um, is very complex, and um, all of its premises, but the first, are, are challengeable. Basically, this is the way the argument goes. Premise one, God is perfectly just, Premise two, if God is perfectly just, he cannot punish an innocent person. Premise three, Christ was an innocent person, from which it follows logically, therefore God cannot punish Christ. And then the fifth premise would be, if God cannot punish Christ, then penal substitution is false. Now, apart from the first premise, that God is perfectly just, Every one of those other premises is disputable, and in the book, I go into some detail uh, to challenge one of them, that if God is perfectly just, he can't punish an innocent person, that uh, Christ was indeed an innocent person, or that if God cannot punish Christ, penal substitution is false. So if you wanna talk about any of those, I'm quite happy to do so with you today. Uh, Because I think all of those premises are eminently disputable.
1: Yeah, well, there's two questions that do come up based on that. Uh, The first one, I think, maybe is what's maybe forefront in most of the Christian's minds listening is say Christ is not an innocent person. Are you saying that Christ was not sinless?
0: Uh, No, I'm not saying that he was not sinless. Christ was personally virtuous um, without any taint of evil. But The doctrine of the imputation of sins is that God declared or reckoned Christ to be legally guilty of my wrongdoing so that he could be punished Hmm. justly for my sin. Given the doctrine of the imputation of sin, it follows that Christ is legally guilty and therefore can be justly punished. So the question is, is there some incoherence or problem with the doctrine of the legal imputation of sin? Now, to clarify, we're talking here about legal imputation. We are not talking about the infusion of my sin into Christ, that Christ somehow became a selfish, grasping, hateful, cruel, Uh, evil person. That is not the doctrine. The doctrine is that there was a legal declaration on God's part that Christ would be uh, held guilty for our wrongdoing. Now, in my exploration of this topic, I did a lot of reading in legal philosophy with the guidance of a professor of law at the uh, University of Edinburgh, law school and what i discovered was absolutely stunning and that is that the imputation of legal wrongdoing to innocent third parties is a widespread and common practice in western systems of justice including the anglo-american justice system very frequently blameless persons are imputed the guilt of other wrongdoers, and can therefore be punished justly for the wrongdoing of that other person, even though they are an innocent third party. So the idea that uh, the imputation of sins is something that cannot be done flies in the face of our anglo-american system of justice where it happens all the time.
1: Yeah, and I think that's such a key point that is so often forgotten and again what we just talked about before is like often we leave out a detail and that's why that seems unjust or unfair or bad is we're missing something is is this idea of imputation and you preempted my second you preempted my second question because i think it was in first of all listening to your doctrines class that you began to work through some of those laws in which this happens all the time when again i was like oh my goodness this makes sense and so i would love for you if you could quickly share about some different ways like i for example you talk about you know designated hitters and you talk about you know representing someone at a board meeting so how are ways in which we do have the legal imputation in different ways of actions or responsibilities
0: Well, there are two principal ways that I came across. One would be through the employment of a legal fiction. Um, A legal fiction is something that the court knows to be false, but for the purposes of a particular action, it adopts this legal fiction um, and then makes a decision on that basis. And a great example of this would be In the 19th century, um, slave traders were running uh, the blockades uh, and smuggling in uh, stolen or illegal goods in violation of the embargo laws. And when these ships were seized, the captains and the crews disclaimed any responsibility for the illegal cargo, they blamed the ship owners instead. But when the courts went after the ship owners, they said, well, we had no idea this is what the captain and crews were doing. We're, We're completely innocent. So the way in which the court solved this was by adopting the legal fiction that the ship itself is a person and is therefore liable for the crimes which have been committed. And this eventually became standard maritime law uh, in the United States, that ships before the eyes of the law are legally persons who can therefore be held um, responsible for various crimes committed by the captains, crews, and and ship owners. Now, this is an outrageous... ontological fiction that the yeah. ships are persons <laughs> and yet by adopting this legal fiction it resulted in a more just and equitable maritime jurisprudence that mm. um, has now been widely adopted so that would be one example God could adopt the legal fiction that Christ committed these sins that in fact I committed and could therefore be held, Uh, legally responsible for them. That would be one way. The second way is a remarkable practice in the law called vicarious liability. Um, In the law certain persons in virtue of being uh, delegated by a superior to a certain responsibility and have their wrongdoing imputed to the superior. The superior will be vicariously liable for the wrongdoing and crimes of his subordinate. And this vicarious liability characterizes both civil law, where people bring lawsuits against employers for the wrongdoing of their employees, But it also features in criminal law, where employers can be held criminally liable for the crimes committed by their employees. So just to give one example of a a very famous case, um, uh, an owner of a a cafe uh, delegated the running of the cafe to a particular manager this manager allowed prostitutes to congregate in the cafe in violation of the laws against prostitution. Well, the owner of the cafe was held vicariously liable for violating the laws, even though he had no knowledge that this was going on and that the manager was doing it. Because of his relationship to the manager, he could be held vicariously liable before the law for the crimes that the manager had committed. Um, And this is very common with respect to uh, employer-employee relationships. Uh, This idea of imputation uh, is very widespread in the law.
1: Yeah, and again, I th- I love that you share that, and that's why I wanted to bring that up because I think that again, these are common legal practices that happen of how we are able to legally represent people in different ways that sometimes we don't think about, and we just go, well, that sounds weird, and maybe it sounds yeah. weird, but this is what happens, and we see it as a just thing, and we just maybe are unaware that it's functioning in that way. Um, now, kind of going along with this, and then there are some questions coming in the live chat that I want to get to, and so if you have more, send them in, but. Um, this idea of Jesus, of the cross being, I guess, needed in a sense. We see examples mm-hmm. uh, in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 9 or Luke 7, uh, 7 let's see, 48, of, of the healing of the, the paralytic, where he says, your sins are forgiven, or the woman in the well, you know, "I forgive your sins, go and sin no more. Um were there sins actually forgiven if Jesus had not died on the cross? How do we understand Jesus forgiving sins without oh. requiring anything if we say that the cross is necessary?
0: Really, this question is no different than how did the Levitical animal sacrifices offered in the tabernacle and the temple function to bring about the expiation of sins and cleansing of the people. And what Paul says is that God passed over former sins and did not give them their just deserts until the time of Christ, and then the just dessert for those sins was poured out upon Christ as our penal substitute. So yes, forgiveness was available through the Levitical sacrifices, it was available during the ministry of Jesus as he forgave sins, but that is because of the uh, penal substitution that would be offered by Jesus as the ultimate Lamb of God that ended the sacrificial system once and for all and took away the sins of the entire world.
1: Now, analogy that I've heard for that, and I don't know where I heard this, but is it, the analogy was given if it's similar to like a credit card purchase of you go to the store, mm. you buy the thing and you get it, but it's not technically paid for. It's not paid for till the end of the month when you pay off your credit card. Now you've paid for it, but you got it the day you swipe that card. And so the analogy yeah. was given that pre-cross, all sins were paid for, but kind of like on credit. The cross then yeah. paid that credit, so to speak, paid for all previous sins, and then also put enough money, so to speak, in the bank account to pay for all future sins. Is there some truth to that or some issues with that analogy?
0: Oh, I think that's a great, I think it's a great analogy. It seems to me entirely Okay, wonderful. Um, All right. So jumping into some
1: questions here. Now, you mentioned the Levitical law. Um, What is the difference? We, We see some different things taking place and how does it relate to the atonement? We see the difference of placing sins on the head of the lamb and then killing the lamb. And then we also see placing sins on the head of a scapegoat and releasing the scapegoat. So can we, is there a way that we can understand this to make more sense of how sins were forgiven back then?
0: Sure, I would encourage folks to read the 16th chapter of Leviticus about the sacrifices offered on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. That's what Yom Kippur means. And you have this extraordinary ritual that involved a pair of goats, and these should not be thought of as two independent sacrifices. These were like two sides of the same coin. One of the goats was then slaughtered by the priest as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Um, The other goat then was uh, laid hands upon by the priest and then driven out into the wilderness, carrying away the sins, iniquities, and transgressions of the people so that the goat that died, for the sins is the one that takes away the sins, but the other one symbolically represents how these sins now have been removed from the people uh, and are no longer uh, needing to be dealt with. There's a wonderful analogy earlier in the book of Leviticus that involves the sacrifice of a pair of birds for skin diseases and leprosy, and what is done there is one of the birds is taken and is slaughtered, and its blood is offered as a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Then the other bird is released into the air, symbolizing the way in which the person's uncleanness has been taken away so that he can re enter the community. So the Yom Kippur sacrifice of the two goats is exactly analogous to the treatment of the two birds. One is killed to uh, cleanse the offerer, and the other one then symbolically represents how his sin or uncleanness has been removed from him. Awesome. I appreciate that. Um, So jumping in here to some
1: of the questions in the live chat, Uh, the first one here says, um, aside from our personal dealing with sin, What about the universal sin problem? And if Satan was defeated at the cross, why are we
0: still dealing with it now? Well, there is a universal sin problem in that people continue to sin. New people are born every single minute, and new sins are committed all the time. So those sins need to be uh, atoned for and pardoned. Um, And so the atonement is sort of like a rolling redemption in history as people come to appropriate the benefits of Christ's atoning death over time. So I guess I just don't see what the problem is supposed to be. Um, Sinning goes on, and so God's forgiveness and pardon needs to go on as well. Okay.
1: Uh, next question is, uh, do you hold to conditional immortality, also known as annihilationism, can, and can it be considered brothers and sisters in Christ? Do they have any biblical basis for the belief?
0: Well, that is a totally off-topic question for bit. our discussion today. <laughs> um, my own view would be that we do, uh, that uh, the damned do undergo eternal conscious torment for their sin, um, and so I'm not persuaded by annihilationist views of the fate of the damned. Okay. Um, but this is not so serious an error theologically that it needs to separate believers in, from one another. I, I think that there are lots of theological mistakes that we all make that don't rise to the level of forcing want to disfellowship with someone holding that view okay
1: i appreciate that now kind of jumping back and that reminds me of another question kind of getting back to more of the atonement topic uh what is your view on limited atonement who did jesus actually Uh, die for
0: yeah this is really interesting um as i understand it christ's death was universal in its scope it was for everyone but where i differ with the proponent of limited atonement, is that I don't think that the um, atonement for a person's sin is fully realized and actualized at the cross. As I was indicating in my previous answer a moment ago, what happens at the cross potentially atones for every sin that will ever be committed. But that requires a person to receive God's pardon and grace uh, and to actualize that atoning work of Christ in his life. Um, And I think that really makes sense because uh, a person in the future doesn't exist and therefore has not committed any sins and therefore cannot be held guilty for any sins. So it doesn't make sense to say that atonement for people in the future was fully accomplished at the cross. Um, Rather, I think there is the potential in the atoning death of Christ to cover the sins of whatever future people do come to exist and whatever sins they do come to be guilty of if they will then appropriate it and receive it. Okay, that's good.
1: Um, All right. So uh, Mike Winger here wrote in another comment. Let me go back to uh, here. Now, I think you kind of addressed this a little bit, but I didn't know if there's more that you could say on this. Um, He's asking, uh, he'd love to hear you talk about the misrepresentation of church history common in the secondary literature regarding atonement theory. So I know you kind of mentioned that it's kind of false to believe that the early church only believed these things. Is there any kind of other comments of how maybe that what we see in church
0: history is misrepresented? (sighs) I have to say, Ryan, as a result of this study, I have come to distrust the secondary literature on the doctrine of atonement because it was not just the church fathers that are misrepresented as holding myopically to ransom theories or Christus Victor theories. Other great atonement theorists are also misrepresented in the secondary literature. For example, Abelard is portrayed as being exclusively committed to the moral influence uh, theory. That Christ's death actually doesn't do anything in and of itself, it just uh, produces a subjective change in us as we see Christ's um, love for us and the uh, horror of our sin for which he died, and this kindles love for us in him so that we turn away from sin. In fact, when you look at Abelard, he clearly says that Christ's death was a sacrifice and satisfaction for divine justice. Um, Anselm is misrepresented, as though God were a sort of feudal lord who is too mean-spirited to forgive sins and therefore demands the pound of flesh be paid when in fact he could just magnanimously forgive sins. You read Anselm, that's completely wrong. For Anselm, what is essential is the justice and holiness of God, which demand punishment for sin, rightly deserved. And if God were to fail to discharge um divine justice. He would not be a holy God. He would be morally imperfect and morally flawed. And so it's not a matter of a a feudal lord who is too malicious to forgive sins without sacrifice, which he could have done. Not at all, for hence It's a matter of meeting the demands of divine justice that holiness demands. Uh, Hugo Grotius is misrepresented in secondary literature. There we're told that Hugo Grotius didn't really believe in penal substitution. He thought that what God did was he punished Christ to show what it would be like if he punished us for our sins. It was just sort of a a a graphic example Hmm. for us to see how bad it would be if he punished us for our sins. Hmm. And that again is clearly wrong because Grotius says over and over again um, that Christ's death was a substitutionary punishment in which he bore the punishment for sin that we deserve so i would encourage people not to trust the secondary literature uh you've got to read the primary sources yourself wonderful
1: that is very helpful and in, in understanding because i know that's a, such a huge thing is we often hear oh so-and-so believed this so-and-so said this and we really need to see what was actually believed and said now one other kind of mm-hmm. objection and a question just came in that we might get to um well actually we actually covered eternal torment here so we'll skip that one for right now but If punishment is kind of required, um, then how, like, Christ calls us to forgive without having a condition placed upon that forgiveness. So are we now supposed to say, uh, now there's a condition, I'll forgive you, but there's this punishment that still needs to happen, or um, should Christ be, why isn't Christ forgiving like we've
0: been called to forgive? You just forgive because you're supposed to forgive. The reason is because, as Hugo Grotius so clearly saw, God is not merely a private person involved in a personal dispute. A private person having a personal dispute with his friend is free to magnanimously forgive the wrong and be reconciled to the other person. But God is not a private person in a personal dispute. He is the judge and ruler of the universe who is responsible for the moral government of the universe. Uh, and as such, he must punish sin rightly deserved. Now, God has the ability as the ruler to pardon sin, uh, but under the conditions that the ruler lays down. And so uh, it, is, it is not a matter Uh, of using God's role as the judge of the universe for our personal relationships with people in our private capacity. Where the analogy would be is, as we said earlier in our interview, that judge in Dallas, Texas could not, without injustice, have mercy upon that person before her bar. As a judge, she is responsible for administering justice. But then as a private person, she can forgive and be reconciled uh, with the offender as, as she wishes. Yeah.
1: So I would love to give you an, another analogy. We talked about, about some analogies. I presented some already. Uh, this is, I found, uh, actually, more a few websites as being presented as the best analogy for the atonement. And it is that of music lessons. And it says, uh, here's the analogy, I don't know if you've heard this one, it says, um, I am the piano student, Jesus is my mom who is paying for the lessons, and God the Father is the piano teacher. Uh, How is the debt paid? Well, the lessons are paid for by Jesus or my mom. Uh, Me practicing and playing the piano does not pay for the lessons, as in my works don't pay off my sin, Mm -hmm. Uh, it needs my mom or Jesus to pay it. And then how is it repaid by us Well, by making sure that we practice. And then that's where works come in, is that we repay with the gratitude of what Jesus has done by practicing. So is there some goodness or some, what would you say about this analogy of the atonement is like piano
0: lessons? I think that analogy is wholly without merit. That is the worst analogy to the atonement (laughs) that I have ever heard in my entire life. It is so trivial. That's so superficial. It has no understanding of God's role as the judge of the universe and the Mm -hmm. dispenser of moral justice. It has no concept of sin whatsoever in there. It thinks of um, our sin in terms of a financial obligation to be paid, but there's no wrongdoing involved just on every level there's no redemption in that model there's no Mm. being set free there's no conquering of death hell or satan uh there's no moral (laughs) influence Uh, it's worthless that is absolutely (laughs) worthless that's an analogy to the new testament doctrine of atonement and anybody who thinks that that analogy has any merit, has virtually no understanding of the New Testament doctrine of the atonement, that person desperately needs uh, theological education because the superficiality and erroneousness of that analogy is frankly appalling.
1: Uh, Dr. Craig, I would love to know what you really think about that analogy. Um. Oh, man, I don't know if I want to keep going now. No, let's see. Um, I've heard it said. Oh, it wasn't your (laughs) name. No, I know. Yeah, I know. Now now I'm going to say it wasn't mine. No, I'm just kidding. That was not mine. I found it online. Um, I've heard it said that the atonement is like eating a full five-course, massive, expensive meal, and Jesus pays the bill. I think you'd have something Uh, similar of it, the sin. Same thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just missing everything. Where do people come up with these silly ideas? Have they no understanding that Christ died for our sins? I mean, they're just terrible.
1: What about uh, you commit a traffic violation, you have a $10,000 fine, you go into the judge, the judge says you are guilty, you owe $10,000, and then the judge pulls out his checkbook and signs a check for $10,000 and pays the fine for you okay, now
0: that's much better in the sense that you do have there a person who is not a private individual but he has an official capacity as judge uh, to declare you guilty and to find and to condemn you. but then he pays the penalty for your sin, your crime on your behalf. now here it's a it's a financial penalty but The analogy is nevertheless there. It's a kind of penal substitution uh, by this individual for you. And then you can gratefully accept uh, what that person has done. Now, there are still some elements missing. Uh, For example, the idea of pardon, I think, is really important there. Perhaps what he needs to do is, is offer you the payment and you need, then, to make a decision to accept or reject that payment. It, it's not made without your consent. Hmm. Uh, and that would bring in this idea of a pardon and a free response, which should be included. But that's a much, much better analogy, I think. Yeah, and maybe but adding you know, Ryan— Oh, yeah, go for it. Let, let me just say, I don't see why we need these analogies. Yeah. Uh, the doctrine of the atonement in the New Testament is pretty clear. Uh, it can be explained just for what it is. And I don't see why we need to have or draw upon analogies. Yeah,
1: I I, can, I completely agree. I think we, we sometimes try to get some visual picture when, why can't we just use Christ himself, what he has done in describing what truly did happen there? Um I want to end with, I guess, some hope. We have about two minutes left before I know we need to finish up. Um, This idea of Christ's death, how can we as Christians present this in maybe a captivating or in a persuasive way to help people see their need for accepting the death of Christ?
0: Hmm. Well, I think we need to present it as the means by which one can be forgiven of everything you've done and come into a personal relationship with God, a love relationship that will last forever. I remember when I had a debate with Louise Antony, an atheist philosopher at the University of Amherst, or University of Massachusetts Amherst, and she made a very striking comment in her final rebuttal. She said, one of the things that is a huge disadvantage of being an atheist is that there is no redemption. And that just so hit me so powerfully. We've all done things that are wrong. And can you imagine if there were no redemption, that there's that indelible stain on your life, that though you can try to forget it and put it behind you, you will always bear it. You will always bear that stain of guilt Forever because of your wrongdoing. And and she recognized that on atheism there is no redemption. And that's what Christ's death offers us: freedom from sin, the canceling of your guilt before God, and a new life in which you become a new creation as innocent as if you had never sinned uh, in Christ's eyes, uh, in God's eyes. And so I think that's just a tremendous hope to offer to people who are aware of their own shortcomings and, and wrongdoing.
1: Dr. Cray, I don't think that there's any better way to end than that beautiful picture that you have just described. So thank you so much for taking this time and discussing this important doctrine with us
0: today. Thank you, Ryan. Great to be with you again.